I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is Dr. Meredith Friedson. Dr. Friedson is a licensed psychologist in the state of New York and soon to be licensed in New Jersey. She's the author of the book, Subjective Darkness, Depression as a Loss of Connection, Narrative, Meaning, and the Capacity for Self-Representation. Her recent articles include Subjective Darkness, Depression as a Disintegration of Meaning in the Core Narrative, and Psychotherapy and the Fundamentalist Client, the aims and challenges of treating Jehovah's Witnesses. Her areas of research include depression, trauma of all forms, the clinical treatment of schizophrenia and other forms of psychosis, loss, subjectivity, alienation, and social justice issues, including the effects of police stops on Black and Latino individuals. She's drawn to work clinically with some of the most vulnerable populations and believes that her position as psychologist is a privilege that carries with it the responsibility to treat each individual she works with humanely, with respect, dignity, and compassion. Listening to the space between what can be said and fostering a safe place in which creativity and play can develop are vital to her approach. Most importantly, she believes that a tremendous amount of psychological suffering comes from feeling unrecognized, misunderstood, denied, rejected, or unseen. She therefore strives to be present with each individual and engage with them on their terms without imposing her own views, judgments, or agenda. Dr. Friedson is active in the academic community and has a private practice in Manhattan. She hopes one day to teach and to create a new treatment setting for working with schizophrenic adults who have been institutionalized for many years, one that values their autonomy, agency, creativity, and basic human dignity. Maybe you could start by telling me just a little bit about your path to becoming an analyst. Well, technically, I'm not an analyst yet. I haven't had formal analytic training, um, although I plan to pursue that. I work analytically, I think, mm-hmm. and psychodynamically, because I went to Adelphi, and they're very much psychodynamic and psychoanalytically oriented. Um, so. I think I appreciate more of an analytic approach because it's in some ways messier and um, you can be more playful. So I think I ordinarily would be inclined um, originally to have more certainty and like it's more comfortable having clear cut goals and you know, all that stuff. But I, um, I think the gray area is important and getting comfortable with uncertainty and being able to live in that space and kind of uh, allow the freedom to see what develops and play. Um, 
is part of why I enjoy working that way. So it's been kind of like taking a little bit to get to a place where that's my comfort zone. Mm-hmm. No, I completely agree. And um, you just had a book come out last year called Subjective Darkness. And I just want to say that one of the things I really loved about it was like how eclectic you were and all the different analysts that you referenced throughout the book. It's like there's Lacan and Winnicott and all sorts of different like relational Freud, like it's kind of runs the gamut. And so many analysts I feel are very like stuck in one kind of way of seeing. And you really wove together all these different perspectives. And I really appreciated that. I appreciate that you appreciate that because I didn't realize that that's what I was doing. But I guess I, I feel like all of these different people have so much to offer. And I, I just kind of devoured whatever I could get my hands on. And one thing led to another. And yeah. What was the process that was coming out to make the book? Um, uh, life's work. I think when I got to grad school, this was from my dissertation in grad school. And when I first started doing this work, I was lucky enough to be with a research advisor who wanted it to be personally meaningful. And um, so... I had struggled with depression, actually, life lifelong, starting in childhood. And I thought, if I can make something meaningful of this, then that will be healing, mm-hmm. <laughs> ideally. And so I think I'm trying to process <laughs> all of the literature and all of the reading and the writing I did, it was kind of like talking about how language fails in conveying really important things internally. Mm-hmm. And then trying to find words to write about that was like recreating the very process of depression that I was reading about and writing about. Right. Um, but when I was able to do it and come up with something, I would be writing something. Hang on. Sorry. Um, I would be writing something that was really painful or depressive and I would get excited because it's like, yes, I finally have words for this. And I also love how you use the patience words, like you, the, the book for those who are going to read it after hearing about it, um, is laid out in the way that the first few chapters are theory and like where Meredith is coming from in the beginning of writing the book and thinking about depression. And then the last few chapters are about different case studies. But the great thing that you do is use the patient's own words in each of those chapters. And that's something really different as well. I wanted to, to try and keep their language intact and to, to be, I guess, loyal to their experiences. And that was one of the things that I struggled with when I was approaching this work, because as soon as, as soon as it leaves them and then it becomes a collaborative thing and then I do something with their words or to their words, it, it, I was so afraid of, um, doing damage in some way or, or like misconstruing their meaning because I feel like depression is at its core feeling in some ways misunderstood or disconnected. And so I, I very much didn't want to do harm in like, they gave me a gift by sharing with me their experiences. So, um, it was important to me to kind of blend, you know, some theoretical background with 
people and their voices. What kinds of clinics do you work in or private practice or? Oh, um, well, I just started a private practice in, in the city, um, Manhattan. Um, and that's kind of just starting out, but I'm also currently working at a state psychiatric facility, um, with people, with adults with schizophrenia who have been institutionalized for decades, some of them, 30, 40 years. Um, I don't know that I will remain in that environment because it's uh, oppressive in a lot of ways, mm. but I do love uh, the work. So in terms of clinical work, I'm drawn to psychosis and schizophrenia and trauma, depression, um, intergenerational transmission of trauma all kinds of really um, intense stuff. No, me too. And I worked in the hospital system for a long time before I went into private practice full time. I guess it was about 10 years. And then like the last few years of being in the hospital was doing that while I was uh, opening my practice. And then I finally switched over. But I really enjoyed the work with the patients in the hospital setting. Um, It was so rewarding for them and for me. And I felt like I was going to really miss that, but it was just like working within the institution just became too difficult after a while. And you kind of understand why so many clinicians in those kinds of settings are really burnt out or kind of disconnected or when, at least when I first started working in the institutions, I'd be frustrated that they didn't seem to really be listening or care. But you realize like after so many years, they have to kind of block things out or something just to be able to cope with that environment, you know? It's really soul crushing. I mean, it's it's quite devastating. I I came in. I feel very bright eyed and bushy tailed with all of these ideals and standards, <laughs> and they've I've fought against them being chipped away by the institution and it, the way that it, the administration runs things. And it's as a result, I I don't think I can survive there because it. I don't want to compromise who yeah, I am as a, as a human <laughs> being. Um, but it makes me sad because there are not enough people who can survive in that environment with integrity and care for the, some of the most vulnerable people. So when I do leave them, I'm going to miss it a lot. The patients. Yeah. I still do. Um, I started, I moved to New York in uh, 2008. So it was right when the economy had collapsed and, um, I was working for Health and Hospitals Corporation, and um, their solution was to not uh, fire anyone or have layoffs, but if anybody left their position, they wouldn't fill it. So when I started there, after, I think there was like, I don't know, eight of us or something, and then by the time I left five years later, there was like two of us, and and like a part-time social worker kind of thing, and uh, and I was only part-time. And it was like we had the same amount of patients that, that eight people were seeing originally, you know? Yeah. Um, one of the things that I, I feel like I'm maybe not allowed to speak about it publicly, but one of the things that I wish that people knew about these institutions is that people go there, they get stuff, they get broken down, their agency is taken away, and and they die there. I mean, some people are assaulted and, and die and I've, I've witnessed that. So as someone working in that environment, it's also 
you can feel on a visceral bodily level, or at least I do, how um, deadening and kind of <laughs> murderous a place it, it is. It's, it's toxic and, and awful, and these are just beautiful people struggling. No, absolutely, and I think I had a hard time talking about it more publicly as well, but I think it's important because I don't think that the majority of the population really understands how pervasive our systemic problems are as a country and specifically in mental health, but like how that's attached to the welfare system and the prison system and the education system and the pharmaceutical system. And I think working in uh, mental health care, especially like within the hospital setting, you really kind of see the intersection between kind of all of these systems and how uh, pervasive it is and how so many people are born into it and like, grow up on welfare and then get poor education and then end up incarcerated and then end up in the medical mental health care system. And it's just like churning people through this kind of process over and over and over again and has been for decades and decades. And I don't yeah. think most people realize that, you know, and they suck and that, right. And then there's a separation between what ac- the reality of what actually happens and the perception of people who are mentally ill as this, this thing um, this, this entity, they're other, yeah, they're other, Mm -hmm. right. Which is, which is part of, I think why I'm drawn so much to working with them because I can identify very much with this idea of being, um, marginalized or, or outcast or just treated as, as less than, and I tend to want to fight against that. Um, yeah, I think I think it's really important. One of the things I want to do is to get people to stop um, doing this kind of othering of people with mental health issues because really, and the reason why I like the psychoanalytic perspective, it, it's all just like different variations and different levels of the same kind of underlying structures that we all have. So sometimes maybe people get pushed to an extreme that's not manageable for them anymore, but it's not like there's something fundamentally different about this person versus another person you know and the things that they're saying and doing on some level make sense and i think one of the problems is the breakdown in communication when people start you know doing this othering where they think uh, especially with psychosis really oh they're delusional or oh that's psychotic or they don't make any sense and it's it's like well if you try to understand where they're coming from they make a whole lot of sense even if it's not based in this shared reality um that's that's the nature of it so i think the only way to be able to connect with people experiencing psychosis is to do it on their terms to try and step outside of your own uh way of perceiving the world of being in the world and and allow in what they're going through and and kind of tap into your own capacity for psychotic thought because and and experience because only in doing that will you realize oh this actually makes a whole lot of sense given the context of of their lives and this is in some way protective of them um to the alternative yeah and i really appreciated that you wrote about that in your book as well as like a lot of the a lot of times that somebody has a way of coping that they developed when they were young that was very functional and very adaptive 
given the environment they were in or the family system they were in. But then when you're outside of that environment or you get older, maybe something that you relied on or was your go-to kind of defense uh, isn't working anymore or has become maladaptive. Yeah, and I, I also think I wish that people could understand the immense level of pain that that underlies this. It's it's not it's not that people are acting bizarrely or just you know not in reality because they they want to be uh, troubling to the people around them. I mean, these, these are people who have experienced. Things that are so immensely, profoundly, life-alteringly uh, painful a lot of the time, mm-hmm. and there's no way. I mean, that's what trauma is. It's it's something that's overwhelming to the point that you cannot possibly process it, and so it 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 takes its toll on the the body and the psyche in different ways, and you're you know, some people feel it physically. I mean, I feel it physically when I go into these institutions and, and, um, but yeah, the, the, the psychosis or depression or whatever form, uh, the struggle is taking is, is trying to ward off or protect against complete disintegration. And I think that's, what's missing in, in the, the public, discussions about mental health issues. I don't know if you've read Darian Leader. He's a British psychoanalyst who's also a psychiatrist, but he wrote a book um, called What is Madness? I think it came out in maybe 2011, and I think you would really like him because he, I mean, he. it's great that he's talking from the perspective he has because he is an MD and is a psychiatrist, so even though I would love for that to not have more clout, it does in the world we live in right now. Um, and it's really great that he writes articles like in The Guardian and that sort of thing. But this book, uh, What is Madness, he talks about how uh, in psychosis specifically, like these delusional structures, as people want to call them, um, have formed over time for a reason. And that it's not a good idea to tell people that they're delusional or that this is wrong or try to break that down because they've put this in place in, a, in for a reason to help them function. And that if somebody's functioning... Um, with that in place, then who are we to change that? Like, what's the deal? And that one of the things that really um, spawned my, I don't know, whatever I'm on, my mission that I'm on, <laughs> um, I had this conference with Manya Steinkohler, this other analyst that's in Umbahagen. Um, I guess it was 2015 on violence. And we had that because basically I was just leaving the hospital setting, I guess, in 2012. And I had had a really difficult case um, where I was struggling between my own idea of what was ethical and how I should be treating my patient versus what the hospital was saying I should do and what my supervisor was saying I should do. And basically, just like to make a long story short, it was a patient who was deemed psychotic, and I worked in an HIV clinic, so he had HIV. Um, and basically, they kept hospitalizing him forcibly Um, and wanting him to take medication because they said if he didn't take his HIV medication, he was, like, trying to kill himself. Like, that was their rationale. But he had had HIV since, like, the 80s, and he was a slow progressor, and so he didn't actually really need it. Like, it wasn't actually – he wasn't deteriorating in that way. But they kept hospitalizing him anyway. 
And then he actually worked for the hospital system as an accountant. And so he was very smart and like together and together enough to be able to be an accountant for a large hospital. And uh, he had this delusion, quote unquote, um, that he like, you know, was from outer space or something like that and, and whatever. But he like came to the earth like he was on this mission to um, – to bring tidal energy to the world to kind of help the world be saved. And so we get off of oil and coal. He wanted to like go to natural energy sources. It was like a really nice idea. But anyway, he like talked about this at work and they basically called the, like other people, I don't know, know this, but the hospital system has their own police force. And we had like a police station underneath our hospital. And they basically like called the police on him because he said, because he said this stuff and he ended up like getting put away. And then when he came out, he didn't have a job. And then he ended up like, yeah, and then he ended up homeless and then he ended up in this like welfare system. And he was so depressed, uh, understandably. And I was like, you know, I understand that like probably he's not an alien, but I'm like, People believe in Jesus. People believe in all sorts of things. Like, why can't he believe that? Like, what does it hurt anybody or matter, you know? I mean, I've, I've sat in morning rounds and had uh, psychiatrists say, oh, well, you know, this person is clearly delusional. They think they're a famous uh, football player, and, and that means they're not ready to be discharged. And, I, and I'm thinking, well, so what if they believe that they're a famous football player? That's that's a cool thing to believe. I mean, if it's not interfering with their functioning, and, like, why is it, why do why do you feel the need to try and take that from them? Yeah. And in terms of the, um, you're talking about um, how yeah, telling, take his medication. telling people that they're delusional is not, useful mm-hmm. it's, it's it only serves to further alienate them and it's it's dehumanizing it's it's a complete refusal um of their entire identity subjectivity their reality and and i mean i wrote about that in the book too in terms of depression it's it's this feeling of alienation and disconnection where you can't you can't commune with another human being and i think when it comes to psychosis um that that's the very nature of it. You're, it's like a flight from the agreed upon meanings. Um, but it doesn't mean that it's meaningless. And, um, yeah. And some of our greatest leap forward come from people who don't agree with the agreed upon meanings. You know what I mean? Then that becomes the norm. A lot of of the societally agreed upon meanings are in meanings are insane. I'm actually, um, attending a it's what is it the second international eric from psychoanalytic conference um, this coming june in berlin and Ooh. it's on um putting society on the couch and so one of the things that i'm writing about there is how uh, people with psychosis actually are commenting on aspects of society that are insane and they're speaking more coherently. And we, we designate large groups of people as, you know, not in touch with reality. And then we try and deaden. Oh, that's what it is. Necrophilia. Um, Eric Fromm's idea of necrophilia and how like institutions and many aspects of society take on this necrophilist position where we try and like, take all of the nuance and all of the art and all of the beauty and brilliance of human experience and turn and reduce it to these objective 
concrete measures that don't actually mean anything. Mm -hmm. So we we turn into robots or mechanized versions of ourselves. And in terms of um, being in this hospital system, I often feel like someone is in the process of dying or going to die or be murdered. And, and it's, I'm not just talking about psychic annihilation. I mean, that's there too, but it, it often feels like on any given day, I might not come home in the same condition as I left. And, and for people who live there for decades on end, it's just, it, it, I don't think people in like society who haven't been in places like this can fathom what that reality is like. And it's, it's quite terrible. So one of, one of my missions long-term is to um, come up with a a new treatment model, a new setting that's humane and, and respectful and, you know, holds the dignity of our fellow human beings as the main concern yeah well and that's one of the things that's now on the table again nationally with all of these violence that's been happening is like having more mental health institutions open up and more inpatient units again and what about this idea that we're supposed to like catch criminals and like hold them ahead of time oh that's ridiculous and also just that's insidious the making that leap is further reinforcing this idea that people with mental health issues are criminals and are violent and dangerous. I mean, some, some become that way in institutional settings, but that's not the vast majority of, of people. It's, it's people who are struggling, who are scared. Um, they're frightened of, of harm coming to them and likely have experienced that in the past. And then society treats them in such a way that reinforces this very real fear. So yeah, we've we've got to do better. We have to do something that's better than this. I mean, and I noticed on your book as well. Did you do the painting on the front? Oh, I'm so glad you asked about the painting. So actually, my that painting was done by my grandmother, oh, wow. Ruth Friedson. She is uh, currently 92, oh, wow. and she's just. Uh, I actually have that painting framed in my office. And when I was on internship in a community mental health setting, I had it hanging on the wall and it, it, it's, um, an image of what I think is a man kind of falling through the sky and it's sort of uh, ominous or depressive. And so I, I always thought it interesting when patients would happen to notice that painting in the course of, uh, our relationship or sessions. I mean, they would, and when, within the context of the conversation it would come up. But mm-hmm. yeah, my, my grandmother is um, a really immensely talented artist and um, I have a collection of all of her paintings and I actually have used her artwork on business cards. It's kind of like a way of um, honoring her and keeping her close and she's just a sweetheart. So <laughs> yeah. That's fantastic. And I'm, um, I definitely am a big believer in the arts and the arts is a form of therapy in itself um, and processing. And I recently, you know, I'm in Stockholm now and I recently uh, went to Copenhagen uh, with my husband for a film screening that we were doing. Um, And there was this exhibition of this person named Ovar Tachi, who I had never heard of before, but she was an inpatient uh, in a mental health institution 
um, from like the 1920s. And I think she was in there for like 40 years or something like that. And they had this huge exhibition of all of these pieces that she had made. And she made like a lot of these paper mache kind of figures that were like actual like 3D sculptures, as well as drawings and paintings. Um, and she's trans and what, um, surprised me is that even in the context of this show, like, uh, this also surprised me, like, like when we read like Schraber's memoirs, to me, it seems like if Schraber was alive now, he would have much more language for like what he was experiencing, um, and his possibility of being trans and the possibility for manifesting that than he did at the time. And it seemed like over Tachi was having something similar um, and she considered herself a woman and you know, lived as a woman. But even in the exhibition of her work, they kept referring to her as he and he and he. And I just found that like so terrible and disrespectful. Um, yeah. But I do want to visit. They have a hospital. The hospital that she was in is now closed, of course. Um, but it was like outside of Copenhagen a couple of hours. And I do want to visit because apparently they've taken a wing of the hospital and turned it into a museum of her work. And then they have like other gallery exhibits as well. Um, so that's something I'm getting more interested in. Another, uh, psychoanalyst here in Sweden, uh, this woman named Elizabeth Punzi, who's in Gothenburg, She's just recently invited me to go to this um, exhibition, this conference that she's putting together. There's a psychiatric hospital. Um, There was two of them near one another, and they used to have a tunnel that went between them, and they would roll the patients, like, through the tunnel to, like, bring them to different treatments, ECT and these kinds of things. Um, And the hospitals are since closed, but they allowed, like, the last residents that lived there before they closed, like, in the 70s to paint this tunnel full of images. Um, And now the tunnels, now the hospitals and the tunnels are going to be torn down. So she wants us, my husband has a publishing company, and she wants us to go and document it. He's also a photographer. And so we're going to go and document all of this art and make a book out of it before it's torn down. But that, between those two experiences, that's something I'm getting really interested in is like, um, preserving past art that's been created in these hospitals and just looking more towards um, working with art and with psychosis. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. And I'm, I, there are actually where I'm working many, many buildings that have been closed down for a long time and there are remnants of, of life there. And, you know, like you're talking about paintings on the walls and different it, you can see the the way that people were living, and it. Uh, I mean, a lot of the buildings where I am have asbestos in them, so it's not like people can go in and kind of observe it. But they're all being torn down. So, if you have an opportunity to go and you know preserve something like that, because this this idea of like outsider art versus like I don't know art school art or whatever to me is so ridiculous. Like art is art. And I feel like, if anything, it's outsider art to me that's, like, really art. Like, somebody needs to do this, they're compelled to do this, they're processing something through it rather than, like, having an idea and a concept and, like, executing it. Because to me, that's, like, all ego and, like, what your ego wants to create. And, like, isn't the point to, like, bypass the ego and see what your unconscious has to say? Uh, You're reminding me a little bit of... um Another thing that I was working on is having to do with schizophrenia. I was thinking that my patients 
can't not be themselves. And that's, that's what makes them so beautiful. And that's what makes me love them so much. It's that it's, they're not <laughs> the, all the pretenses, all the stuff that we build up around us to like exist in society and feel okay. They, they don't have a lot of that. They speak so honestly from their core of, of who they are and they can't not do that. And, and when someone tells them, Oh, that's psychotic. Oh, that's delusional. They hold fast. They're like, no, this is, this is my truth. Mm-hmm. And there's so much beauty in that. And I think that there's so much more potential than we allow these members of our society. And I, I feel like we could have, it would be so much better if we honored these qualities in people. I mean, they, they have so much to offer. And, and I'm thinking actually of one of my patients who also is, you know, he's not from outer space, but he is here to uh, prevent the next nuclear war. And he's, you know, a consultant. We need him. <laughs> yeah, to like President Fast. And he's just, um, and we do kind of like interpretive dance in our work. We'll just be talking with each other and um, moving our, our feet in different patterns as we do so. And he's, yeah, he's wonderful too. So I I appreciate what you're saying about, um, yeah, art and expression. Tell me more about that, how you got into more like interpretive dance or that sort of work. Well, that's what I'm, I mean, that's what I'm calling it with, with this one particular patient. Um, I try to remain open and I think play is such an important developmental capacity and for people who whatever form expression comes in I want to try and receive it because denying it or closing yourself off to it is just another kind of assault against the person so um this is a person who can read people's footsteps and hear um different demands or communications in body language and in footsteps. And, um, he often will kind of move one step, one foot forward in a rocking motion a little bit as, as we were speaking. And so I, I just kind of instinctively started mirroring that in our communications one day. And it's, it's turned into kind of a beautiful, um, relationship in that sometimes we'll share, like this secret language and I don't necessarily always know exactly what's being communicated telepathically (laughs) to me, but you know, it's kind of like I've been accepted into an inner world where more communication is possible. And I mean, sometimes we even end up (laughs) doing the cha-cha as we're, as we're talking in the middle of the hallway. Um, So yeah, there's, there's so much, there's so much beauty if you if people could be receptive to difference in others. Yeah, and that's really meeting the patient where they're at and working in a way that works for them, you know, being open to that. Because one of my problems with uh, psychoanalysis, when people are too rigid about it and they have, like, one theory that they stick to, like I said, and kind of looking at every patient through that lens, when I try to read a bunch of different theories and even like, you know, I worked in hospitals for a long time, so I know CBT and I do relaxation training and all these kinds of things and even behavioral therapy. I know how to do all of that. And like if someone's having panic attacks and it might be helpful 
to do relaxation training with them just so they have some coping skills so that they can do the talk therapy. I don't see the problem with that. <laughs> you know? Well, it's the, it's the, the rigid clinging to one way of being that this dogma that is hindering. I mean, what do, what do we lose by embracing different forms of communicating? It's like having access to multiple different languages. Some, some concepts can't be expressed in one language the, the culture does, just doesn't have descriptions for it. Um, so if we can tap into ones that do, I mean, that's, I, I'm actually, I don't know why I'm associating to this, but I, I believe there's a phrase in Japanese, um, or it's like a word that specifically describes the sensation of looking through, uh, tears in your eyes mm. or something, which I think is a cool concept. And it's, you know, no, I love that idea of thinking about it as different languages. That happens a lot. Um, I'm from, I speak English primarily, but I'm from Miami, so I know Spanish, and then I'm learning a bit of Portuguese, and now I'm in Sweden. In Sweden, they have this concept called logom, which is like, like I try to understand it as like things are just right, but it's like the idea is that if things are just right, like evenly balanced, then that's perfect. So that's just like, it's like sum up, summed up in this word that everybody here kind of lives by this kind of idea, but it's just different and it's hard for me to articulate it in English, you know? Right, right. That's beautiful. Yeah, I like that. Um, is there anything that you want to talk about that we haven't touched upon that you think is important to mention? Um, what is important? <laughs> I'm sure there are. I'm sure afterwards I will think of them. Um, also, just for those who don't know, uh, I met Meredith through this group in Bahagin, uh that I started with a group of kind of disgruntled psychoanalytic candidates that we weren't really super happy with our training um, and wanted to find this kind of alternative uh, way of educating ourselves outside of the formal institution. And it's really grown and turned into... Um, its own kind of community, and I've met such great people there, and the, like much more free thinkers, people that are more eclectic, open to trying new things, and working in different ways. And I think all of that's really important. I recently met a bunch of the the people you're describing. I had been I had been in, informed about Dustin Bahagin through a friend, and kind of uh, observed quietly from the the shadows the different discussions that were taking place. Yeah, it is. Community. I'm really excited. Would to, you be open yeah. to talking about that a little bit? I read about it online, and it seems so interesting. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, I would love to talk about that. What was the premise? So it was a it was a group group relations conference um, through the AK Rice Institute and using the Tavistock Clinic model, um, and it was about leadership, identity, authority. Um, in groups and systems and the roles that we unconsciously take on um, in groups. And the, the premise was to study unconscious roles we take on in real time as they were unfolding. So it, it was very unstructured. Well, there were certain structures in place, but it, for the most part, was very unstructured. Um, it reminded me very much of my um, interview to try and get into Adelphi University, just everybody in a room with no one saying this is what we're doing. The, the purpose was just learn about group relations. And um, it was, for me, it was very intense. Um, for me, it was immensely 
painful and disorganizing. I felt psychotic the majority of the three days that we were doing this, but in a tolerable way. Um, there was aggression and fears of annihilation and who's going to control the other person and who has a right to speak. I mean, in a group setting of maybe 50 people, as soon as, as soon as the, the space becomes open for each and every person to do with what they wish, then they, you become hyper aware of, okay, if I say or do something, how will that affect other people? And if I refrain from engaging in a way that I feel is important to me, what am I giving up? So how do we exist in this communal space? And, um, there was, it was interesting to me because I realized, okay, I, I'm not entirely sure what role I take on, but I was aware that when there was aggression underneath the surface or that I sensed, and then a denial of it, I was not okay with that. Mm. I, I was like, oh, this is going to come out in the open and we'll deal with it. But then when I would see conflict with other people, I wanted to try and repair or protect different party members. So, um, what do you think yeah. about that difference? What, that, that, that they're kind of, um, not contradictory, but they're kind of like different sides of the, the same coin. Well, I think for me, uh, aggression and hostility and anger are much more sinister and dangerous when they're disavowed, mm-hmm. when they're disowned and denied. Um, it, it can be much more toxic. So I think if some, if there's a conflict and there's, there's something to be angry about or aggression, I would rather have it explicitly stated outright and then I can deal with it accordingly um, rather than the insidious ways that it, it manifests outside of our own awareness. But when I, but I'm also not like a sadist. So when I see people um, having a conflict and, and not even one that's disrespectful, just conflict, I never realized how, how strong an impulse I have to kind of, repair or protect or translate one person's uh, communications for the other, because I I often think I observe everything that's going on around me and try and take in and and digest the chaos, which maybe is why I felt psychotic the entire weekend, but it's easy for me to see, okay, this is a conflict that's starting because this person feels unrecognized or misunderstood. And this person feels slighted and they're they're, com- they're not communicating. They're talking at each other, but they're missing. And if I can see that, I'll want to, you know, help clarify. But sometimes people need to be to have the space and the freedom to kind of work their, their shit out and know that they're not going to destroy each other mm-hmm. if they speak aggressively or not aggressively, but if they express their hostility. And I, from this weekend, at least, I learned, oh, I, I can survive a lot and I won't destroy people. Um, and if you're care, if you take care in the way that you relate to other people, it's, it's really empowering. I mean, it's, it's unlike any other experience I've had and I would recommend it, but you need to have the constitution and the, the, you have to be in a good space because it's, it's really exhausting and draining and painful, (laughs) but empowering and good. Yeah, but I'm really glad we were talking about this towards the end because it kind of, um, to me, summarizes or touches upon um, lots of different kinds of things that we've been talking about. And as society as a whole, like if people had more, if mental health was less stigmatized, 
um, and people had were more encouraged to talk about their feelings more openly, including the negative feelings, and they weren't felt didn't feel so much like they were going to be othered or shunned or called you know mentally ill or that sort of thing. And there was more of a place for discussion and emotion um, coming out in all sorts of different ways and communicating in all sorts of different ways. And I think our society would be a lot healthier and we wouldn't have so much of these like violent outbursts that we're seeing and that sort of thing. People could feel free to take off the mask. Um, I'm wondering if you have seen the movie I Heart Huckabees. No. It's one of my it might be my favorite movie ever. It's this existential film about, um, what is it? They're existential detectives that this person goes to to investigate a coincidence. And it's it's very cerebral, and it's people often will watch it and say, I don't know what I watched, and I, I don't know if I liked it or not, but every time I see it, I, I uh, come across something new. And the thing that's sticking out to me, again, this is like what I said about my patients. They can't not be who they are. Mm-hmm. There's a... a a moment in I Heart Huckabees where one of the characters says, well, how am I not myself? And then it gets repeated over and over again to try and drive this point home. So I, to your, to your point, if we could just drop all like the facade of having to be something other than who we are, there would be so much, I think, relief in that. Um, but it's a terrifying prospect. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard Dr. Meredith Friedson. For more about Dr. Friedson, please check out her book, Subjective Darkness, Depression as a Loss of Connection, Narrative, Meaning, and the Capacity for Self-Representation, published in 2017 by Roman and Littlefield. Her professional website is MeredithFriedsonPhD.com, where she recently started a blog. For more about me, visit my website, DrVanessaSinclair.net or RenderingUnconscious.org. Recorded on the new moon, June 3rd, 2016. My lunar module could never rest. Take me to the moon. The dark side of the moon, yeah, temporarily in is Lilith. And I bring to you, despised, and I seek your moment of freedom. Were spare developed an idiocut creative space habit right there as soon as the knowledge by leaving the child fly to UK to sign books return home from UK 
Brian Geisen and William S. His works, however, the definition connective tissue as the skin, limbs, and divination proved was not that very be with you, know or not know of laboring feel. Of laboring feet, know or not know. Be with you, fairy. That was not proved. And divination, as the skin limbs, connective tissue, definition, his works, however, the Brian Geisen and William S. Return home from UK. Fly to UK to sign books. Knowledge by leaving the child habit right there. As soon as this spare created an idiosyncratic space, were moment of freedom despised, and I seek your is Lilith, and I bring to you temporarily in the dark side of the moon. Yeah, take me to the moon. My lunar module could never rest.